Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. Where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you tonight? Matt, I am doing okay, but I am here to take you to task. Okay. Someone, someone... Missed the Comics XF New Jersey versus the World Trivia Contest. I did. I did. You did. Now, New Jersey triumphed in your absence, but I'm going to put you on the spot. I got two Star Trek questions for you. Okay. All right. First one. Although long part of canon, this man, the first captain of the Constitution class USS Enterprise, made his first major on-screen appearance in the debut season of Strange New Worlds. Damn. I got, you got me. You got it. I got to also admit my brain is kind of shot today. It's so been a long day. I know. It's been a rough day. So I'm, I'm, oh God, I can even picture the character, but the name is like jumping out of my freaking head. Hit me. Robert Bob April. Yes. Yeah. Admiral Bob. Bob. Yep. All right. This this one is gettable. Okay. You're gonna do you're gonna do fine on this one. Okay. If three Starfleet captains were combined by the transporter in a Cronenbergian mess, judging by their next generation era ranking pips, how many lieutenants could we make from the resulting horrific monster? All right. So captains have four pips each. Indeed. So that's three captains. Uh huh. That's 12 pips. Uh huh. And there are 12 gold pips. Uh huh. Because commanders have three pips. Uh huh. Gold pips. Lieutenant commanders have two gold pips and a black pip. Uh huh. Lieutenants have two gold pips. Full grade lieutenants. Full grade lieutenants. Right. So that means that you've got 12 pips from. The captains, two pips or six, six lieutenants. Ding, 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 ding. All right. There you one, go. That one, yeah, I've re- maybe not completely redeemed myself, but I was able to I was able to pull that one out. Nicely done. Thank you, sir. But speaking of Star Trek, we're gonna get there in a sec. Uh, because Ooh. we have not one. Oh but shit, two ah! new Patreon backers this week. Ah! Putting us at 11, we are now over halfway to the Star Trek goal. So let's uh, let's give a big thank you and a welcome to our newest Damian Wayne tier backer, friend of the show and previous guest, Robert Secundus. Hey, Bobby Two Bucks. Thanks, Bob. And new Jason Todd tier backer, Tim Rooney. Oh, hey, Tim. I don't know who the hell you are, but thank you so much. Yeah, so we are at 11. Nine more. And we will be doing that Star Trek ranking bonus episode available to all patrons. Ah, uh, well, I, look, I, I have to apologize for saying that. I don't know who the hell Tim is. Uh, wait, what's his name again? Tim Rooney. Okay, I got confused. Like, Tim Drake? No, uh, he's Jason Todd. Uh, so, I look, you are a good man. You are a blessed man. You are, the, you are perhaps the greatest man who's ever lived. Please don't pick a shitty book. <laughs> we're gonna have to see and you know in three months we're gonna we're gonna get another one Ooh. please just 
Nothing Murphy, nothing Johns. Nothing Murphy, nothing Johns. <laughs> oh, whammy! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this week, uh, Dark Knight Returns. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, no, 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 Strikes, strikes Back, again. excuse me. I, I, yeah, Strikes Back, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, boy. Well, well, we're going to find out. We are going to find out. But not tonight. Not tonight for either of those guys. Tonight, we are reading three stories featuring the smartest man in Gotham, at least according to him, the Riddler. As one of these Riddler stories turns 20 years old this week. Uh, Was it the Golden Age story? (laughs) No, it was not. Ah, okay. As a matter of fact, starting with the story reaching its anniversary, Hush. This is Batman Volume 1, numbers 608 to 619. The writer is Jeff Loeb, pencils by Jim Lee, inks by Scott Williams, colors by Alex Sinclair, letters by Richard Starkings, and edited by Bob Shrek. The cover dates are December of 2002 to November of 2003. Batman is bedeviled on all sides by a seemingly unconnected series of attacks by his rogues gallery that a sinister hand is guiding. And as he and Catwoman grow closer, the questions become more pressing. Who is the bandaged man called Hush? And how is he connected to the Dark Knight? Uh, first out of the gate, as always, Problematic Creator Watch. Uh, Jeff Loeb, as far as we know, has never apologized for various racists, anti-Asian or at least stereotypical Asian statements, and thus remains in the camp of problematic creators. Gross. Hush is another in Loeb's long-form Batman stories, but as opposed to Long Halloween and Dark Victory, where he worked with Tim Sale, this one, as said, was A, by Jim Lee, art-wise, and B, took place in the monthly Batman title, so it was well entrenched in continuity as opposed to the other two that took place in the past. So we're a little less hung up in what was going on in the DC universe at that particular moment. What a gifted life to uh, lead. Oh yeah. I worked with Tim Sale and then Jim Lee. Yeah, no big deal. And, And then you go over and you look at the Superman Batman title, you know, Ed McGinnis, Michael Turner, Carlos Pacheco. Yeah. Loeb has worked with a lot of major artists throughout his career. This is just a random side note that I don't think is going to fit anywhere. But uh, yeah, I read this in the, the collected edition and I was really surprised to learn that one of just the iconic covers for this era uh, is not only from Lee, although I guess that's not a big surprise, but it's like a variant cover it's just stuck in the back of this uh, in this trade. The uh, the Batman standing on the gargoyle. Yep. Yep. That was either a variant or a second printing. And it, it's one of those images that gets used everywhere. And it is not one of the main covers of any of these issues. Batman 608 second printing. Yep. For second printing of the first part of the story. So Hush is another one of Loeb's attempts at a mystery. And it is another one of these mysteries with the swerve at the end. And we'll get to that about whether how well this swerve works in comparison to the Gilda Dent swerve. 
<laughs> uh, there's there's not anything that could be worse, Matt. I, I'm not going to argue that point. Not anything that could be less satisfying, less out of left field. Um, mm, no, I got nothing. But this very much lives in the same world as those stories in that it's basically a big old jam. This is let me write every character that I feel like writing. Let me see who Jim Lee might want to draw and cram that character in here. Every bit of continuity. Yep. While it is a 12 part story, it's all really like one and two issue mini arcs taking part over this 12 issues. Because the first two issues are sort of the setup. Then the second two issues are in Metropolis. And the then there's a one-off. And then the two issues with Harley and the Joker. And it's sort of micro arcs forming a wider story. Or I think one and two, three is a one-off. Four and five are Metropolis, excuse me. And, and I will say this for the for the book, and we'll get into some cl- complaints, I'm sure. It does not read like 12 issues. The, the story zips along pretty well. Um, you see the same kind of storytelling techniques that you see in Long Halloween. Someone has been drawing, you know, Batman's enemies together. Like the same themes repeated at the beginning of every issue. It feels very cohesive, but not not really padded like none of this seems overly decompressed and again we'll we'll got plenty to say about the rest of it but uh i was never bored like something like uh zero year i'm like oh my god will this ever end uh but this 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 moves along in a pretty good clip yeah and Loeb captures the voices of the characters all pretty much spot on like none of these characters seem particularly out of character and the one moment where i was reading a character like wow that is really out of character i was like oh right that's a setup i'd forgotten that bit because i haven't read hush in a number of years probably i read it when it first came out and then i read it when i got my absolute edition which fun fact never try to read a comic and take notes while reading it in the absolute edition it does not work that big giant hardcover really difficult to put down take a note pick it back up find your yeah no floppies or a, a trade you can you know don't mind breaking the spine on or digital that's the way to go when you're taking notes on a on a book but boy, no. howdy, them uh, them hardcovers look nice on the bookshelf. Oh, they, yeah, absolutely. It sits right up there with my absolute long Halloween, Dark Victory, Haunted Night, New Frontier, Sandman, Dark, a Black Mirror. I, I love a good absolute edition. The Parker Martini edition, the Darwin Cook Parker books. Chef's kiss on how gorgeous those books are. So here's a question for you. Yes. So we're used to... Loeb and Sale. And Tim Sale's style is not the most realistic. There's there's a certain degree of expressionism in Sale in Sale's style. His faces tend to be somewhat elongated. I mean, you look at his Joker and that crazy snaggletooth Joker of his. 
Lee, on the other hand, is a very different artist. Lee is that hyper-realism of the 90s. How did you feel this style worked with this story? I liked everything but the uh, the Batmobiles. The Batmobiles are cartoony and silly, and they do not match the rest of what's going on here. But I thought as a whole, it worked. Yeah. This is oh oh and um he's got too much uh TNA on the brain. Yeah, that's that's Jim Lee. You let Jim Lee draw poison ivy and you're gonna get what you're gonna get. But this is a very well-drawn book, it's well laid out. I think Loeb played to his strengths. This was not often designed to be the moody, atmospheric stuff that you get out of sale with the exception of the Joker issue and the very final confrontations between Batman and a faux hush and the real hush. Much of this is bigger and widescreen. And it uses two-page spreads judiciously. You get one two-page spread per issue. And it's the same layout, which I like. Yes. It's consistency. Yeah. It's used in style. There is an interesting thing they do with flashbacks, with this sort of... Watercolors. Yeah, watercolor painted nature to the flashbacks. Love that. Yeah, it's, it's neat. It really sets them apart because they are so integral to the book. And as we complained about this last week with the Brubaker story and the fact that you had this old friend of Bruce Wayne's who just pops up out of nowhere as if they were someone we should have known. While Tommy Elliott is similar in some ways, it makes more sense, A, that he wouldn't have talked about it because they were friends when they were children before the death of the Waynes. And also we get a reason why he was suddenly back in Bruce's mind at the end. It wasn't just like, oh, I randomly thought about Tommy Elliott. It's like, oh, no, there there was a reason that happened. A delicate, intricate plot uh, based on science that doesn't work. Really? I, I have little doubt. I'd never read any study that said that those the subliminal whatevers are not actually a thing. Yeah, the, the original supposed experiment was fake. Oh, we learn something new every day. <laughs> Uh, check the show notes for a a Skeptoid podcast uh, link uh, that I'll send to Matt, maybe. Uh, But otherwise, (laughs) go go to the Skeptoid podcast, look for subliminal advertising. All right, so I guess we're deep enough into the plot here, right? And then we could talk about like the overall reveal or the mystery or whatever. This is an epic story. I, I can give it that it... As we've said, it just draws on so many of the rogues and so many parts of Batman's life, so many weird little asides into continuity, like, hey, bringing in Harold uh, just to murder him. Harold, who hadn't Uh, appeared in, oh God, at this point, at least three or four years, maybe right before No Man's Land, so... Because I remember a story, and I think it was Batman Chronicles around Cataclysm, where you see Harold leave the Batcave. So that was 99. This is 2002, so it's been three years. 
three-ish years. But um, Tommy Elliott, his his deep secret life and hatred and pathology and him being the faux mastermind behind all of this, that just does nothing for me. Not a single fucking thing. Like we get to that last issue and, and Tommy's like, Oh, I, I wanted my parents to die. I, I cut their brake lines when I was 10 and I, y'all, how dare your father save my mother and I had to wait for her to die for cancer because I wanted all of that money. Da, da, da. And then I and then I went on to become a surgeon and have a relatively normal life. But all this time I was plotting my revenge against you. And Jesus Christ, it's just so just overwrought and just almost in, in, intelligence insulting. Like it just bleh. Yeah, Tommy Elliott, the bad seed is a weird twist. And eventually we'll do Heart of Hush from Paul Dini and Dustin Wynn that tries to flesh out Tommy and give a little more understanding to that. And we'll see how much better it feels for you after you've read Heart of Hush. But Hush as a character, like from here, he goes right into a long arc in Gotham Knights that is not great. He's sort of the behind the scenes, like coming in and out of that series for a while we saw a little bit of that in war games and the gotham knights parts of war games with him and prometheus buddying around but then he doesn't pop up again until the r.i.p era and heart of hush and he gets more interesting there but i'm never sure how i feel about tommy because this initial thing is he's there not only as a front for this story or within the story but he's also a front for the readers because it's friggin obvious that he's hush and even his death which is sort of there meant to throw you isn't that shocking that he wasn't dead it's really <sighs> to keep you from picking up the true mastermind behind the story and so many goddamn people in bandages and trench coats, like fucking exhausting. Yes. And there are a myriad of Dark Knight Returns references in this book, both the Batman Superman fight, the bald Harvey Dent, and the Batman strangling the Joker nearly to death are all obvious riffs on DKR. That was one really sour note in the book yes batman should occasionally have a flight of fancy about killing the joker but he should never get so close to doing it that was just too far he went too far down that road for my taste and it just i can't figure out unless you argue that there is some sort of subliminal mind control or something going on here why i mean you could argue oh you know he just He'd had this brain injury and he was just hit on the head again. And so that would push him. But he didn't do this when Joker killed Jason. He didn't do this when Joker shot Barbara. He didn't do this when Joker killed Sarah Essen. Why All things that are referenced. Yeah. Why Tommy Elliott, who he hasn't really spent time with in... 
30 years is the thing that pushes him over the, the, the edge. And Harvey is used too little in this story and is also used weirdly in that, you know, he springs the Joker from lockup and then we never find out why or where he put the Joker. Like he's like, oh, he let the Joker loose. We don't know why. I can't imagine Jim Gordon for anything else is going to forgive him for getting the guy who crippled his daughter and killed his wife out of jail. And and even if you could get the Joker released because of the Tommy, because there was evidence he didn't kill Tommy Elliott, he's an escapee from Arkham. There are a myriad of charges that keep him in prison. He is a flight risk. What judge in the world is going to put bail for the Joker? It makes no sense, that that beat. And if it came back around, I could see a reason for doing it, but it just is there with no purpose in the story. And Harvey is both cured and reformed and then also serving, you know, Tommy's nefarious ends. Uh, very weird. Very yeah. weird. And we'll circle back to some of the good bits in a moment. We're going to have to get, let's, let's finish talking about the ending before we circle back to anything else. What about the, the final reveal for you? The reveal of who actually was the mastermind behind this whole thing? Well, this is one of the few stories that uh, I had actually read before for some reason. I don't know why. I knew we were doing a Riddler episode, so that certainly kind of reminded me, oh, where's Riddler halfway into the story? Oh, okay. I guess he's going to be really important at the end. I like I didn't really feel it was a it was a big twist. Um, It felt a little unnecessary it felt like a weird just kind of appendix to the story more like some kind of final twist to it similar to gilda yeah yeah but not as crazy as gilda no it's not as out of left field as gilda the riddler at this point had been a joke character for pretty much 20 years denny o'neill wrote an issue of the question where the Riddler is pretty much a schlub. There's a line Batman has in this story about how he can't figure out why the Riddler hasn't retired yet. And I sort of understand that because the Riddler has been not much of anything. I mean, we saw him in Nightfall and there he was kind of a joke. And I think there are a few stories in between there and here where they try to make him more of a threat and it never really works. So here, this is a like, oh, hey, see, Riddler can be cool. My problem, and this is my problem with definitely the next story and also I think the third, I like a Riddler story that plays fair. You should be able to go back in a Riddler story the way I feel about it, and follow all the clues to get to the logical ending. And definitely the next story, and this one, I don't think the clues are there. They require leaps of logic that 
don't click for me. You don't like the twist in the third story about how it was uh, the shape of the things that Riddler was trying to steal and you put those together? Oh, yeah. No. no. <laughs> I have them listed with that as the next story. That's the... Oh. Yeah. My, my, my goodness. This is such a herky-jerky order tonight. But that's yeah, okay. That's okay. I, I, I went chronological after this story just because... <laughs> It's been a long week. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we're going to talk about Hush for like 40 minutes and then we'll have like, oh, five minutes on the last, last two. One thing I do want to say about the reveal, the page where it's done is probably the most hideous page in the 12 issues of this story. Loeb goes ultra mega bendis and we've got these two like railroad checks of dialogue running down the page as Batman is conversing with his off-screen, off-panel nemesis, and it's just hideous. I fucking hate it. Yeah. Loeb is not Bendis, and I feel like he wouldn't have done that with Tim Sale because of the way Tim Sale draws. It would not have worked, but since Lee can do smaller panels you know lee worked with claremont who is also not exactly known for being terse uh, i think Loeb felt like he could get away with being a little wordier in some places who the fuck wants to read a comic that looks like this that's that's the thing i don't understand writers doing this if this had come up more than you know once it would definitely encourage me to bump it down the list a couple of spots but I don't, I don't get it about Murphy. I don't get about even about Bendis sometimes. Like this is a difficult, painful, arduous page to read. Don't make comics like this. If I wanted prose, I'd pick up a fucking book. Also, I can't read. So this page just mocks me. Back to some of the other stuff in here. This is the beginning of the modern Bat-Cat romance. This is really where... Bruce and Selena come together for the first time since the crisis. And I feel like it works, or at least Batman and Catwoman, because we've seen Bruce and Selena before in Long Halloween and Dark Victory. But this is the time where their lives are intersecting. And this is taking place during the Brubaker Catwoman run, hence seeing selena with leslie tompkins during this story i like the fact that this isn't easy for either of them it would have been very easy to write this story where suddenly they just decide that they're together and they kind of fall for each other but no these are two very independent people and batman struggles with the decision to tell selena he, he spends time trying to figure out if it's the right thing to do. He talks to Nightwing about it. Or Nightwing talks at him about it anyway, which is a nice touch. I like Bruce and Selina as a couple. I like the way they play off each other. And so I think this serves as the beginning of everything that has come between the two of them since, for good or ill. And... I like the way that there's a lot of thought that goes into this relationship. How is Tim going to react? You know, what's Nightwing going to say? The decision to bring her into the cave. 
was represented as something serious. The decision to unmask uh, and disclose Bruce was uh, was very serious and deliberate. And that was those were some nice notes. Selena has a hard time, and she stands up to him when he's acting like Batman, when he's you know not necessarily being trustworthy or trusting of her. She calls him out on each time, and when. Alfred or Tim get up in her grill, she is a little quick to threaten to scratch their eyes out. And I love Alfred's reaction. There isn't a ton of Alfred in here, but whenever he shows up, he's well represented. And I like, you don't like me very much, do you? Oh no, I think the world of you. But I've healed his wounds for years, but there's one thing I can't heal, a broken heart. A broken heart. Yeah, and it's a great moment because... Alfred would think like that. Alfred would think about when Bruce falls in love, what has happened every time before this. And we should have known that Tommy Elliot was up to no good when he shows up and calls him Alf. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, like, Oof. No, no you're, you're a bad man. Bad egg right there. Also, at this point, Loeb was not just writing Batman. He was the regular ongoing writer on Superman. So that's why there is such an organic interplay between Clark and Bruce and Lois and Selina and Bruce and Lois and Bruce and Perry White. I love that Bruce owns the Daily Planet. I think that's a great thing that he bought it from Luthor because Luthor had bought it to shut it down and that it's a whole big plot in the Superman titles that doesn't really affect anything here. This is a much less entry-level story than Long Halloween because of things like that, because of President Luthor, because of Talia as CEO of LexCorp. And boy, by the way, an evil billionaire as president, and he actually divests himself of his holdings. What weird fictional nonsense is that? Uh, Lex Luthor being less evil than reality. Amazing. I like all the Talia in here. There are some characters that don't get enough room to breathe. The characters that come in towards the end, as we said, Harvey, Scarecrow as well, is just kind of like, oh, and here's Scarecrow. I would have liked some of the Scarecrow stuff to be seated in earlier. Yes, where it could have been a more plausible misdirection. Yes. And Raish is just sort of there. At no point, even when you get that initial clue, did I ever think that this was Raish al Ghul. Raish is not going to play this kind of game. Yeah, he um, he's not subtle. He's just going to steal your parents' bodies and... Just try to break you. Yeah. Raish would might be subtle with someone else, but not with Bruce. And this is one of, if not the last story where Jason Todd's shadow hangs very, very heavily. Because Jason will be resurrected within a couple of years of the end of this story. And this sets up a lot of those pieces for the resurrection of Jason Todd. And eventually it will be retconned in that at least somewhat during the fight between Batman and Clayface, 
that is really Jason. That Jason was part of this conspiracy. All right, that's dumb. Yeah, I was not not a big fan of that particular retcon. It seemed needless. Uh, but the the design for future fake Jason Todd is pretty tight. Yes, I like Jason Hush. I think that that was a really solid design. The wisp of gray in there. Why would a corpse age? Question mark. That works out. And once you get past the initial, has that come up before? The, the I gray... feel like that. No, no, no. The, the the question of why a corpse would age. I'm feeling the strangest deja vu. I feel like that has come up at some point. Maybe I'm just losing my mind. I, you know what? I'm sure it has somewhere. I'm not sure where, but that that does not strike me as a unique idea. I like Jim. I like how Jim is used here, but I wish that it had more breathing room too. I would have liked more of Jim and Harvey. And why they, they, the whole point that it was Jim's old service piece that he handed in to the GCPD that shot Tommy Elliott. It's like, well, what does that have to do with anything? That seems like another needless layer to this plot. I just want to underline again, as I'm flipping through, looking at the Metropolis issues, Jim Lee should have just stopped, right? Uh, look, I'm not going to begrudge a man his uh, his sexual needs, uh, but you shouldn't put that in the comic book. I'm staring right now at a panel of uh, Lois Lane as she's falling from, uh, I guess that's the Daily Planet, and the cleavage is just right there. It's so in your face. Her breasts are literally busting out of her blazer it's it's ridiculous that's jim lee for you i do like a lot of the that those those issues the batman superman fight the fact that bruce trusts that the only way to snap clark out of ivy's mind control is to put someone he cares about in danger and that will make clark come too because deep down clark is a good person I disagree with Bruce thinking that he... He is not. Yeah. Right. Although, you know, I sit back and you wonder about that. You think that that might be Bruce being harder on himself than anyone else is. But I don't know. I don't know if this story could have, should have been shorter, but I think it could have been, some of the action could have been distributed better to give some of it time to breathe in better ways. I would have liked more of Harvey and Jim. We could have done the the opera and the death of Tommy Elliott, that two issues is one issue, and given more time to play around with the mystery. I think that's probably one place where the story was a little longer than it needed to be, but it was pretty. And why did Tommy Elliott have to be a doctor? Like that just doesn't make any fucking sense. It served the story. The, the core of the character, the core evil of the character is he is a spoiled little shit who wanted his parents' money as soon as possible. He got that money. Again, why would he, why would he be a doctor? Why not be the character that Bruce Wayne attempts to be, right? He should have been just some degenerate playboy. And you could have worked him into the story. Like Bruce could have tried to reform him. He could have been like, you know, there's there's more to life than fucking around and drinking all day. Let's try to do some stuff. 
we're going to read Heart of Hush soon. And I'm curious to see how you feel about the character after Heart of Hush. Uh... I don't know if it's really going to change much, but I'm curious to see what that might change in your opinion. I also never get why Jeff Loeb decided somewhere that the Scarecrow speaks in nursery rhymes, because that's something that's been in all of these books. And I, he's the only one who's ever had the Scarecrow speak in nursery rhymes. It's weird. Are why Bruce and Tommy play some ill-defined war game when they could just play chess? There's the, there's that too. I, I don't know if I have much else here aside from story blows up a lot of Batmobiles. A lot of weird, weird Batmobiles. So I think that's that, that's about it on this one for me. All right, that means it's time to put Batman hush on the big board. All right, we are currently at 165 stories in the big board. Number one is Batman Year One. Down at number 30 is Tower of Babel, JLA 43 to 46. Down at 60 is Where Were You the Night Batman Was Killed? From Batman Volume 1, numbers 291 to 294. Coming in at 69, it's Justice League, Last Ride. Down at number 90 is When in Rome. Catwoman, When in Rome, numbers 1 to 6. 120 is Dark Knight, a true Batman story, graphic novel. 150 is Days of Rage, the final arc of the Huntress ongoing. And down at the bottom, at 165, is Batman White Knight. Boo. All right, so right out of the gate, one of the stories I mentioned down at 90 is When in Rome, which is an, another Loeb story. That's Loeb and Sale. And it was released after this. So a lot of that in there with Riddler suddenly making this swerve into like sinister villainy versus him being the goober that he was in Long Halloween and the beginnings of Dark Victory is sort of setting up retroactively some of the stuff we see here in this story. However, this is considerably more substantial than When in Rome. Yeah, When in Rome, it's pretty, but you're not missing anything important if you're just like, eh, I'm good without it. I do not think this cracks the top 30, though. Oh, no. No, no, no. If the center here had been more essential, if Hush had been a more compelling character, I think it would have been in the top half, maybe the top 50. But I appreciate the scope of the story, but ultimately I don't think it's essential. I don't think it's an important read. It is a read. It's an interesting read. It's a fun read, but it does, not a lot there. It does reestablish Batman and Catwoman as a strong romantic pairing, which has been central to Batman and Catwoman as characters since. So that is the most important thing to come out of this story. Mm, but this story is not uh, Batcat the beginning. This story is Batman Hush, dear yes. Matthew. Yes, I'm just saying that it does have lasting resonance. Most of the other stuff in it, Harvey's fixing of his face lasts another... 30-something issues. 
Uh, that's, I mean, Harold remains dead. Hush still <laughs> pops up every now and then. But there are more important Batman rogues in the modern era than Hush. To the point that the animated adaptation of Hush completely changes the ending. Aha! In that, spoilers, Riddler is Hush in the animated adaptation. It's Riddler all the way through. Tommy Elliot is dead when Joe, when he's found dead in that alley. Interesting. Okay. We'll, we'll get to that as a Patreon bonus episode. Another reason for everybody to sign up for the Patreon. So, okay. Next story that let's, let's say Nightfall part two, who rules the night down at 59. I was just looking at that. Um, this has an equally nebulous conclusion that we get this ending here and it's like, well, Bruce doesn't know if he can trust Selena. He doesn't know if he can trust himself. Riddler's out there with the knowing the secret. Nightfall part two ends with, okay, Jean-Paul has taken out Bane, but he's still kind of unbalanced and he's in the cape and cowl. We've made some kind of peace with Robin, maybe, question mark. I think we're in the right area. All right. I'm not I'm not marching up too much higher, but the the classic question, would I reread Nightfall Part Two or would I reread Hush? And I feel like I would reread Hush. Yes, I agree. That being the case, I think 53 thrill killer. Oh Matt. Matt, you you come to me the week before my birthday and you inflict upon me well, one wait. of my treasures. Wait, well, so I'm, I, that's why I'm putting that out there as a thing. So I, I am fine with you saying that Thrill Killer deserves to be higher. However, we have to remember that Thrill Killer both encompasses the three parts of the main story and that weird postscript. Uh-huh. That one shot that also ends in a really strange way that doesn't really work. Batman Hush is not essential to the overall Batman experience, but it's more essential than Thrill Killer. It is also probably more essential than Little Gotham, right above that. However, Little Gotham is infinitely more fun. Ah, uh, that it is. While I could take it being above Little Gotham, I don't think it goes above uh, Resurrection Night above that batman 400 the final pre-crisis batman story which has a similar vibes it has a bunch of villains being pulled together by a mastermind but that tells this 12 issue story in one issue and while jim lee is jim lee that's got you know brian boland and all of these other legendary artists sounds like the new 52 I think it is. Our next story is Remarkable Ruse of the Riddler. This is Batman Volume 1, number 171. The writer is Gardner Fox. The pencils are by Sheldon Maldoff. The inks are by Joe Giella. No colorist is credited. Letters are by Gaspar Saladino. Edited by Julius Schwartz. Cover date, May 1965. Released from jail after years, the Riddler decides he wants back in the game and returns to Gotham to bedevil Batman and Robin. But what exactly is his game this time? And why does it seem the Riddler is going straight? 
Hey, guess what? Time for another problem, problematic creator watch. Julia Schwartz, known sexual harasser. Not a creep. But he's dead. Well, yes, long since. Fuck him. So this is right in the heart of the Silver Age, but a little before Batmania. This is cover date of May 65, so it's probably a release date of March 65. So we're still a year out from the big hit that will be Batman 66. But, but this does perfectly encapsulate the tone of Batman 66. Like you can read the narration in this issue in that narrator voice and it works perfectly. Meanwhile, at stately Wayne Manor, the home of Bruce Wayne and his ward, Dick Grayson. Including the little almost act break blocks, the, that Silver Age splash page that gives you a sort of synopsis of what's going to be happening there there's a lot of the silver age to this and this is as opposed to a lot of the silver age stories we've done a full 25 page story in one book this isn't a batman lead with a robin backup like the uh beware of poison ivy from 181 this is a full-length batman story in here and as he's pointed out, the first Riddler story in 17 years. The Riddler has not appeared in a comic in 17 years. Could you imagine going 17 months without a Riddler story nowadays? Ah, uh, he's he's coming back with a, with a new gimmick, a new look every six months. And I mean, let's be fair. Could you imagine going 17 days without a Joker story? So. Ugh. Now, now we we can't do this Riddler episode without again talking about one bad day and how fucking terrible that was. And this story talks about the Riddler's original origin, the one that isn't weirdly retconned, where he cheated at puzzles in school to prove he was smarter. It's like, okay, he's a crook. He's been a crook from day one. As opposed to one bad day, which is just I don't know. A mess. My father was the headmaster at a school and he beat me mercilessly. And I killed a man at the age of 12. Uh, I killed I killed Professor Dead Poet Society. Yes. Beat him to death on a basketball court. That's not the Riddler. Uh, I don't like thinking about that story. It was real bad. Um, this one though, a fucking hoot. I just, yeah. I loved this. This is a very fun Silver Age story. And I love that this is Riddler like, oh, this other mob, the Molehill mob is driving Batman up the wall, thwarting him. I'm going to help him because I want to be the sole object of his affection. Attention. <laughs> again i think we said i said this in the print column when we talked about one bad day with the possible exception of the joker there is no batman villain who is queer coded more regularly than the riddler and you get into shows like gotham where it's almost text and harley quinn the animated series where it is text the riddler 
more, even more for me than the Joker is in love with Batman. Because I believe the Joker is asexual and the Joker views Batman as, I guess, I mean, you can, I suppose, actually, the Joker I view is both asexual and aromantic. The Joker is obsessed. But the Riddler, I think, is in love with Batman. I think the Pay Riddler. Pay attention to me. Right. Batman is the only one who challenges him. And so he has at least a romantic, if not sexual, attraction to being challenged in that way. And I think it would be great for them to just friggin' just say it in the comic. Uh, but that would make uh, Frederick Wortham uh, very upset. But he oh. too is dead. Yeah. Well, let's, let's not worry about Dr. Fred, who I think had his own issues. <laughs> the censors always do, Matt. Yeah. They always do. You spent that much time, though, with one of America's great serial killers profiling him. I kind of wonder if that leaves you in a bad place. Friggin' Albert Fish. Look him up if you don't, aren't familiar with Albert Fish. Horrifying. And Wortham did the profile after he was uh, arrested. So this story is, you know, it starts out with that little bit that I talked about where Riddler actively helps Batman and Robin help catch the molehill mob just so they don't have anything to distract them from his scheme. And then he does this whole elaborate set of buying expensive things with inheritance money so he can make Batman look like an idiot while also leaving really nebulous clues to make this into a fully formed batman 66 plot like there would have had to have been consequences like batman would have tried to uh arrest riddler and then uh commissioner gordon would have come along and said well batman we're gonna have to take you in for making a false arrest i'm so sorry about this but the law is clear we have to arrest you you assaulted him you're going we're gonna have to lock you up for assault and then riddler doesn't press charges but batman has to spend some time in jail is this the end of our caped crusader will he be spending time in prison stay tuned What's funny is Batman was not on his A game here because even I put two and two together on one of these, the riddles, because he leaves his riddle about cigarette lighter. And then you see him with this gun. It's like, oh, come on, Bats. That's a cigarette lighter gun. He left you the clue at the last crime scene. Come on. And another 66 thing. Boy, howdy is Robin a punny little shit in this story. The volume of obnoxious puns in this comic, which was very Robin of the 60s, but still. They tried to get him over in the narration as Teenage Thunderbolt. That was multiple occasions. I'm not buying that. I know. They tried Mm. that one a lot in the 60s and it did not work. Again, this does not play fair because it winds up being Riddler's trying to rob the Ox Club, a nightclub. And you never get any hints of that until Riddler is robbing it. Well, I would have liked there to be the possibility of figuring out what Riddler was going after here instead of it just being like, oh, it's going to be the newspaper. Wait, no, it's going to be the Ox Club. It's like, we didn't have any hints of any of those possible crimes. But one was 
a cross and the other one was the other thing and uh, a pearl there we go that's uh that's kind of like a circle that's like an o yeah there's a delightfully hilarious bit where at the end the riddler does something and he basically turns himself into an electrified weeble you know the old toys Uh, weebles will wobble but they won't fall down yeah 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 ah he anesthetized his face so as to not feel our punches and you know it's only the pain that causes you know someone to black out it's like i i think we could talk to some nfl former players about (laughs) the damage that can be taken from getting hit in the head repeatedly that would indicate that batman spending like 10 minutes punching the riddler in the head as hard as he can is gonna cause some problems that even with an anesthetized head is gonna make Eddie in a really bad way moving forward. And of course, this issue opens in media res with the Weevil Wobble Riddler. How did we get to this point? Stay tuned. Yep. And, and then there are times in here where the Riddler's riddles are much more jokes than they are riddles. Why, why do the prisoners call call it the Fiddler's Hotel, called jail Fiddler's Hotel because it's a vile inn? That's hey. not a riddle. Hey, but it's a great joke to leave on. Yes. Oh, it's a good joke, but it's not a riddle. You can't deduce that. It's wordplay. And, and this is how we got the war of jokes and riddles, Matt. Yep, still not as good as deducing from two riddles that are Russians and a ballpoint banana that a Russian person is going to slip on a banana peel and break their neck. The only possible solution. Uh, we need to do that movie as a bonus episode soon because I uh, we love do. that movie. We do. I got the 66 box set. You know, pick out some random episodes to do. I just like... Look, I know it's not everybody's thing. If it's anybody's thing, it's my thing. I watched a whole mess of TV land uh, episodes and and I just love the slow degeneration of the series. At the very end, that last third season, it's just the same black soundstage where they fight on every single time. I love how you can see the shots reused in every episode. Like they take the movie and they just cut shots from that and use it in every episode it's like oh they're going to police headquarters that's that same smoke roll by like i just i I love just the idiosyncrasies of this weird dumb little show but but the third season also has the batman joker surfing contest episode uh caesar romero no i'm not gonna shave my mustache fuck you mustache stays on get over it (laughs) the original henry cavill (laughs) Yes. This, and we'll, we'll definitely discuss this where it falls within the uh, the oeuvre on the big board, but this is another trifle. A lot, most of these 60s stories at this point are, are trifles. And this would be easy to, to say as a joke, but I'm very serious and I love the evolution of language. You're, you're at the Ox Club, which is this Western-themed club, which is addressed as one of, quote, Gotham's gay night spots. And that is said with entirely, pardon the pun here, entirely straight. 
is not meant to be what it is meant to be today. And it's just, it's interesting that, you know, in 40 years, 30 years from the time this story was written, that phrase would never be used again because it's an entirely different connotation. It's fascinating the way language evolves. Yeah, and the next story has kind of a gay nightclub. Totally different. <laughs> totally totally different. different. I like that this story does have Riddler being pretty clever. I mean, he is jerking Batman around. And that's how the Riddler should be. The Riddler... I can find him very frustrating for being an unctuous, obnoxious jerk. But that's what he is. That is the Riddler at his best, is when he's just so friggin' full of himself. And that's what he is here. Like, he gets sprung from jail. He gets paroled. And what is the first thing he does? I'm going back to Gotham to fuck with Batman. Doesn't even take a day. He's like, no, I'm going straight there. I think everyone should be afraid of Joker, but everyone should want to punch Eddie in the face. Absolutely. The best version of the Riddler I have ever encountered for me is in the Arkham games because he's such an obnoxious jerk. He just he cackles at you and he talks down to you. And it's so satisfying when you get to the end of an Arkham game and you get to just take him down. It feels so good. Screw you, Eddie. And their, their side quest too. Which yes. is, you know, that's about right. Yeah, exactly. Joker is your A plot. Riddler is at best your B plot. Do you have anything else? I'll say that I don't think manhole covers roll that way. No, and also, this is also a very 66 thing that we see a whole scene with Batman at a PAL lunch. It's like, yeah, that, give it another 10 years. You're not catching Batman dead at a police athletics league picnic luncheon. All right. I believe that means it's time to put the remarkable ruse of the Riddler on the big board. All right. So let's move down into Trifle Town. Uh, down, down, down to Trifle Town. Uh, that's, you know, 80s and 90s. Uh, you know, Fearless from last week, the Brubaker story. Uh, Batgirl Day One, the first Harley in comics. When in Rome, the Misfits. Those are all trifle stories. I don't think I could put this any higher than... We'll say 80. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes lower than a lot of those. I think it's above... I mean, I just said it. As much as I love the Tim Sale art in it, 95, The Misfits, is three issues, and it has weird pacing problems, especially when you get to that last issue. This is a well-paced 25 pages. It is. It is. Um... Story stories can be tricky, but this one moves at a good clip and everything is there. I'm still looking higher. Um, yeah, I don't think it goes above 85 the first time Batman and Superman get together. Because that's they, that's that's just so that's wackier. It's wacky. and just the right amount of ra- wacky. Yeah, and it's it's 
more significant. It's the origin of how Batman and Superman became friends. This is, yes, it's the first Silver Age appearance of the Riddler, but it's not the first appearance of the Riddler. Uh, refresh me on Fearless. Fearless is At the Brubaker story, the the one with the. Oh Batman's my God! Did we just friend. did we just read that last yep. week? That was last week. Christ Almighty! The, let's be fair. I, the can't, title, I can't keep all these comics straight in my brain. And the title doesn't exactly leave you with a lot of significance. It's like, oh, it's Fearless. That sounds like a Scarecrow story because it's got fear in it. It's a Batman comic. I want to put it right in that range. I, th- I think you're looking like 90 to 95. I'm looking 90 to 85. Okay. All right. See, I, I think we might compromise. What about 91? 90 is Secret of the Waiting Graves. The first Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, Batman story. Fair. That is historically significant. Below that is When in Rome, which is a trifle that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of anything, but is awful pretty, which is why it winds up so high. I think this probably falls right in there. I think this is the new 91. Okay, I can live with that. Our final story of the night is Enigma, Consulting Detective. This is Detective Comics, Volume 1, number 822. The writer is Paul Dini with pencils by Don Kramer, inks by Wayne Foucher, colors by John Kalish, letters by Jared K. Fletcher, edited by Pete Tomasi and Mike Seglane. The cover date is October of 2006. The death of a socialite brings new competition to Batman for world's greatest detective, the Riddler, who's been hired by the deceased's uncle to find her killer. So we're back in Deanie Town. This is the this is early in Deanie's detective run. This is, as a matter of fact, not too short after Beautiful People. This is actually the issue after Beautiful People. So this is Deanie's second issue on detective. And it is, you know, a reimagining of Riddler because we're dealing with A, Deanie having to tie up the hush bit that Eddie knows the secret. And so he's like, oh yeah, we saw him get hit in the head by a friggin' mace in Infinite Crisis number seven. So, oh, he's been in a coma during the the one year gap. And now that he's come out of it, he doesn't remember. Not necessarily how amnesia works every time, but it's a comic book and great. It removes that bit of minutia and resets the Riddler. And again, I like that Eddie here is just kind of an unctuous jerk. And he works just as well as an antagonist than as a villain in this story. Because he is actually kind of going straight. He's just nowhere near as good at being a detective as he thinks he is. As we will see over the course of the story. And I like the the moment where Batman is absolutely content to just let him crow. You just you just keep being full of yourself. I'm going to do the uh, the real work here, which is fine because that's exactly how it should be. Eddie is in this for the glory, and Bruce is in this because it's the right thing to do. And Deanie gets Riddler's voice. I mean, Deanie 
wrote Arkham Asylum and Arkham City. He wrote that Riddler that you want to punch in the face. And here is a Riddler who you want to punch in the face. He is a showboat. He is all the way through from the first moment you see him in this comic showboating. He shows up at Wayne Manor with a news crew in tow just to quote unquote prove Bruce's innocence when Bruce was never really a suspect in the murder of our socialite victim. Yeah, we uh, we know it's not you. We just wanted to like see what you thought about the picture. Did you do you think it was a good picture? Do you, do you like the composition? Okay. I stand firmly by that Gordon knows the secret and was coming there to kind of subtly give Batman the information that something was going on that involved Bruce Wayne without having to say, oh, by the way, put up the bass signal for that. All right. So it's right after this scene that this comic comes to a dead stop halt for me and I think gave me the beginnings of a brain tumor. Bruce is given this picture of a fake Bruce Wayne with this murder victim. His first stop in the line of people to interrogate is some other guy that she was seeing. He figures out who the, who the fake Bruce Wayne is 15 pages later. He checks that guy out 15 pages later. What the fuck are you doing to me, Paul? Like I like my brain like stopped here because I'm given this picture of uh, of a bald guy quote a surly runt trying hard to appropriate the Lex Luthor look and I'm like well gee that that wasn't the picture I was just shown like uh, did Batman deduce that like uh, that he was in a wig and it's like okay this is a different guy all right weird place to go in the story and in the investigation and just why yeah, you'd think the first thing he would do would figure out why a fake bruce wayne was giving her flowers where the leap of logic to look at the ex-boyfriend it's, I mean, it's not a leap of logic. Most female murder victims are the victims of sexual or romantic partners. In all fairness, I've heard that on procedurals. I don't know if it's actually true, but it is depressing enough to be true. So it feels true. So that makes it true for uh, for our purposes. Yeah. Just a confusing, a confusing ass way to tell a story. I, I think the rest of this is more or less fine. The tone's good. I like the idea of just, as we've talked about before, just being little one-off detective stories. You know, the trip to the sex club is good. Dini doesn't do anything, you know, gross. Yes. Which that, is good for him. Yeah, I was going to say that that is tastefully done. And the fact that Batman treats the madam of the club with respect. Because this is a fully legal operation. This is not you know, prostitution or anything. This is an underground BDSM club. These are completely legal institutions. So it would have been, it would have been very easy to make this feel sleazy, feel dirty, feel wrong. But it's like, no, it's just some, this is what some people's kinks are. And this guy happens to be one of them. And there is a trail of clues laid out here, but 
I feel like you could have introduced the killer earlier in the story as something other than a voice to better set up the final twist or the, the not really twist the reveal. Yes. Cause it doesn't feel like it plays entirely fair, but it plays considerably more fair than remarkable ruse. And just, we've done a few Don Kramer, Paul Dini stories before the penguin story where he comes back to Gotham, a couple issues down the line from this trust the batman zatanna joker story kramer draws a solid a solid batman story he's a good artist and this looks nice and again the art doesn't objectify everything in the snm club and doesn't make it lascivious it plays with shadow it does hint at the sexy but it's not like I do want to say uh, one particular moment of weakness in the art. I admire when uh, when people try to do newspaper pages. I think that's good, right? I want to see some realism. I want to be drawn into the story. I like how we have a little bit of text, but then we immediately go to filler. We get stuff that should have been cropped out. Like, I don't understand. Like, they have a couple of graphs of what would be an actual news story. And then it's just jumbled letter filler text. Why would you do that? It's a bizarre way to both try to make a convincing newspaper page and then not try at all. So confusing. I will say the one bit from the the BDSM club, Pandora's box. Yes. Cause the treasure chest was the bar above it. The madam says that Batman broke up a clown riot down there. I really want to know what a clown riot in a BDSM club is. Because it's, you know, it's like a Joker, you know, gang. Like those guys from Gotham Central last week. And I kind of want to see Batman break up a clown riot in an S&M club. Well, there is at least one clown still in good standing in Pandora's box. Because we see someone with a clown nose in the background. That has got to be someone's kink in Gotham. I mean, that's a kink in the real world and in gotham there's got to be an extra sexual thrill to you know clown sex because it's it's mixing death and sex in a way that rarely happens in the real world look i didn't take psychology 101 but i i'm gonna say i've heard this before and i believe it the difference between a phobia and a fetish is a hair a, just a, a minor turn or twist in your life and you go through life being afraid of clowns uh, or you go through life being turned on by clowns. This is also the first incontinuity appearance of Roxy Rocket from Batman the Animated Series, who we had her first appearance ever in an earlier story that Batman Adventures Annual number one. Did not like the line in that opening where Batman talks about, quote, flakes like Harley Quinn, unquote. I think Batman's being a little too hard on Harley in that statement. And I'd like to think that Deanie, of all people, would not have been as hard on Harley as that. Uh, might be a little too much Deanie in there. The whole thing with Batman investigating the ex-boyfriend then breaking his alibi and then him shooting it out with Batman and Riddler. Yeah, that works. This is a solid mystery story. This is a PI story. And Eddie there the whole time 
dogging Batman's heels and then him in the Batmobile and the, the, the line about this is the first time I've been inside it conscious. Don't touch anything. Is It's a good line. We've made our complaints about Deanie well known, but he writes Batman well. He writes a lot of these characters really well. And the end makes sense. Again, I would have liked a little more setup on it that it was the victim's uncle's assistant. But we only find out a lot of that, that she was her best friend and this and that at the very end of the story. And I would have liked that set up more early on. But Bruce Wayne's secret limo driver, that was a nice touch. Yes. You know, and bringing her right to the GCPD, because this isn't something that Batman needs to, you know, beat down. It's a criminal. And he just drives right up to Gordon at a blockade and is like, here you go. Here's your killer. And in the end, Eddie realizes, because he'd claimed that he'd already solved the case, that it was the ex-boyfriend who took his own life. And when Gordon claims the W, because Batman let him take th- this win, probably to rankle Eddie a little. And then Eddie figures it out. And it's like, oh, crap. It was Ah, uh, shit. Ah, uh, shit. Batman proved once more that Eddie's not as smart as he thinks he is, which is how every Riddler story should end. Do you have anything else? Just looking again at this newspaper page, three-time police commissioner James Gordon has allegedly adopted a wait-and-see position on the one-time arch-criminal's miracle reformation. Three-time police commissioner. Yes. The original hire, he is dismissed as commissioner by Armand Kral for a while in the 90s and run that was when he ran for mayor Kral fired demoted him made Sarah commissioner and Gordon was like no you know I'm commissioner so he quits and runs for mayor and then when Marion Grange becomes mayor she reinstates Gordon as commissioner which was part of Bruce backed her campaign and one of the strings was that she was to reinstate Gordon. And then right before this, after the one year gap, after he retired for a while after being shot. Interesting that this fake newspaper would would point out three time commissioner uh, as like he's some heavyweight champion. <laughs> it is a, an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? All right. I'm picking out minutia. So that means it's time to put Enigma consulting detective on the big board. All right, so first one I want to talk about in a comparison. Down at 114, Night of the Penguin. This is 824, so this is two issues later. This is another story that we actually do see, Enigma Consulting Detective. This is the, as you like to call it, why won't Paris Hilton fuck me issue. Yeah, very gross, very deany. That's why it's down there. This is better than that. I agree. I actually would put this a little bit above Remarkable Ruse. Because I think this, this does a good job in telling the story it's telling. And I like this status quo for the Riddler. It didn't last for too long, but I think it's a really cool take on Riddler, making him an antagonist rather than a villain. If only he had been able to go up against Slam Bradley. Like if they had been competing private dicks. I would have read that comic. <laughs> in a heartbeat. Because Slam would have had 
nothing of this. Slam would have punched him in the head. Yeah, repeatedly. Yeah. It would have been that uh, the the one punch Guy Gardner Batman fight panel. Only it would have been Slam Bradley punching Riddler in the head. One punch. All right. So at seventy nine is trust. That's the two part Zatanna Batman Joker Dini Kramer issue. Ah, uh, this has to be above that because I am not going to award Paul Dini's continued obsession with Zatanna. However, just because there's one more and we know that it's not going here, it's not up at 29, which is another Deanie Kramer sleigh ride, the Joker, Tim Drake issue. No, not that good. Uh Uh-uh. So that, I mean, that unfortunately gives us a pretty wide range between 29 and uh, 79. Well, let's put a cap on it. It's not going above Nightfall at 60. Nightfall part two at 60. No, it's not. All right, well, here's one. 64, Cold Case. That's another mystery. That's the Thomas Wayne serial killer story. I actually like that more. That did give me a chance to discuss libel law on the podcast. And it has, I feel, a more satisfying conclusion. Yeah. Going down a little more. I don't think it goes above Fear for Sale at 69, because that's that's fun. I love Fear for Sale. Harley Quinn number 25 at 71. What's that? That's uh, Harley beats the shit out of the Joker in Arkham. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty good. Yeah. So right now we're... So, I, we, so if we're saying that, that's 71. So now we're between 71 and 79. That's a real... We're, we're now in a nice tight window. Boy. My inclination is to put everything above Killing Joke. See, I'm thinking 75. I think I like the post-crisis origin of Jason Todd more. Because again, that's resetting the status quo on a character. And I think Jason's new status quo there is better than, as much as I like Eddie's new status quo, I think that's a better new status quo. So that would make this the new 76? Yes. Works for me. Fear of Faith, the second No Man's Land arc down a bit. That was not particularly good. No, it was it was fine. It had some some cool moments, some interesting philosophy, but it also oh boy, did the philosophizing go on in that book. Never take in Scarecrow. That's yeah. A simple answer there. You know, I understand all that you want to say about, you know, trusting Reformation and this and that. The fact that he's still wearing the friggin' Scarecrow costume, that should tip you off that this isn't a good thing. No, not a good thing at all. So that means we are now at 168 stories on the big board. We are well on our way to 200. Woo! Next week, folks, uh, buckle up. (laughs) because we are recording right around will's birthday so he's picking the stories and it's gonna be wild closing a narrative thread for the show doing everybody a service everybody but us hey hey look spoiler we're reading the follow-up to batman and superman versus vampires and werewolves you know the decision is not going to be that hard right it's either going to be better or worse. 
And if it's worse, is it going to be the worst thing we've read so far? You know, I said we needed to do some stories that were going down at the bottom of the list again. Uh, you're you're doing us a service on that one, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, uh, <laughs> we'd like to thank our Patreon backers: uh, Dan Grove, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, June, come on, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Harkbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Christian Smith, John Wickham. Robert Secundus and Tim Bobby Rooney. Two Bucks and Tim Rooney for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Bat Chat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly bat chat roundup of new bat books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. Stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.